God, we thank you for Sundays. We thank you so much for a time that we can come together and uh, enjoy fellowship together and enjoy this time to worship you and to reorient our lives on you, Lord. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for Ben and uh, his willingness to, to preach to us about your word um, and to preach to us about your church and the leadership there. And uh, Lord, may our church be an outreach to you and may we resemble your leadership and um, your idea for, for the church and, and for your people, Lord. Help us to love one another. Help us to uh, fellowship with one another. We thank you for the meal that's coming after service today, Lord. We thank you for those that prepared it and those that have uh, spent the time to do that, Lord. May that be also a, uh, an uplifting thing for our church family and for the community. It's in your holy son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. We're breaking from Genesis uh, this week and last week. Uh, and Lord willing, we will be in Genesis until we finish it after this. There's not a whole, whole lot left, but a good chunk still to walk through there. But we're in the process of adding new deacons. And so as a part of that, I want to equip you as church members through proclamation to know what church leadership is supposed to be according to the Bible. So the question we come to today then is what are deacons or who are deacons in the Bible and what are they called to do? And so there's two main texts we're going to look at this morning. We'll be around in different places, but if you want, uh, Acts chapter 6 is one and 1 Timothy 3 are two places that we will spend most of our time. The purpose of a church is to subdue darkness for the glory of the Lord and, and then we do that how Jesus lays out for us to do it. So at Ira Baptist, we have a mission statement that we have in our Constitution and bylaws, but it's also something that's important for us to revisit from time to time because it lays out specifically how we plan on subduing darkness. It says this, We exist to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples through gospel-centered preaching, teaching, worship, community, and service. That is the direction of our church, and that is what our church's goal is as we exist and work in IRA. But the question we need to answer as we walk through deacons and church leadership things is, okay, if that's our direction, then who's driving the bus? Who leads the local church? And the Bible gives us four answers to that question. Jesus, members, pastors, deacons. So let's pray, and then I'm going to walk through each of those with you, and we're going to focus heavily on the deacon section. God, I thank you that we do get together today. I thank you for potluck and for times when we get to fellowship and eat food together. So much of what happens in your word and, and so much of your life, Jesus, revolve, that we know of revolves around meals. Help us to cherish this time. We thank you for the Lord's Supper that we have physical things that we can do to remind us of your life and of your death. I pray that your gospel would reign supreme in our hearts as we look at how you and your word organize churches. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, fourfold answer to who leads the church. Jesus, members, pastors, deacons. Jesus is the ultimate head of the church. He is the chief shepherd. 
1 Peter 2, 4 through 5 says, Come you, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to the holy priesthood. You offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's other texts, but I think it's pretty acknowledged among us that Jesus is the head of the church. We have been saved from our sin by God and for God, but we have not been saved by ourselves for ourselves. God is building something much bigger than you and I individually, but we are a part of what the Lord is building. We've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone for the glory of God alone, but not to be alone. We talked about this last week in the sermon that Jesus loves the church. And when the Bible in the New Testament talks about the church, primarily the way the New Testament uses it is in a local church setting. So Jesus is the head of the church, which is great, but what does that mean? How does, what does Jesus give us in church leadership? One of the most overlooked aspects of church leadership It's that Jesus gives the church to his people, the members. We are a congregational church, which means that we believe that the church body as a whole plays into the church leadership. So church, our church votes on church matters. It's the church's job to hold the leadership of the church accountable. It's the leadership's job to train the church, to disciple them, to grow in the Lord so that they can hold them accountable in the way that the Bible would have us do so. So churches should have the final to say, while, uh, say over a decision while trusting what the leadership brings and presents the direction of the church to be. So at a bare minimum... What this means is we should know who is and who is not a member of each local church. In our part of the world, with what most people in Scurry County believe politically, we would never want a country to have borders as open and as undefined as most churches do. Think of it in terms of a sport. If a team spends years training and a year's practicing and playing games and winning some games and losing some games, but at the peak of it all, they end up winning the state title and they get the rings and they get the trophies and they're so excited, but then somebody gets upset because they came to a game one time and they yelled for the team one time and they get upset because they didn't get a ring or they get a trophy, it'd be absurd. They didn't do anything. They didn't sacrifice. They didn't grow close to one another. They didn't suffer through the hard times. They didn't uh, have, do anything to really help the team, but they want the prize. We do that with churches and with membership all the time. It is from membership, this commitment to the local body of believers, that church leadership is formed. Church membership matters. A lot of that is what we talked about last week. But who brings those ideas, those changes, those direction, that vision to the church members? Who leads the church? Jesus has given us the church he loves, and he intends for us, in one sense, to lead the church through intentional membership. So it means showing up and, and finding a place to serve. But we also know that he's given us two offices the pastor and the deacon. In the Bible, there's many names for pastor 
shepherd, overseer, elder, handsome, all sorts of names. It can kind of just really boil down to the pastor is Jesus' assistant. They're the under-shepherds in the local church. And one of the reasons the local church is so important in the life of a believer is because God has given imperfect men to be pastors for the local church. I'll speak as a pastor that we are all deeply flawed. (laughs) That pastors carry with them many issues. But what you get in a pastor, in theory, and not all churches do this, but if you have a local church and a local pastor that you commit to, then what you get is someone who loves you, which means he wants what's best for you. Someone who cares for you, so he seeks out ways to make you your best. He prays for you. He thinks of your family. He thinks of you. He spends time figuring out how to equip you for the life that you're living in, the world that you're walking in. One of the dangers of the modern church is this idea that you can just watch church online and not partake with the church in physical. When we do that, what we do is we think that the main benefit of a pastor is to open the Bible and just kind of dump Bible knowledge on you, which is a huge portion of what a pastor is supposed to do, proclaim the word. But the problem is, even the best sermons that are available to you online come from someone who has no idea who you are. He doesn't know your name. He isn't bringing you and your family by name before the Lord. He isn't picking books of the Bible to preach through based upon things that are going on in Scurry County, in Ira. He's not bringing anything to the potluck. The online preacher has zero obligation for you before the Lord. However, your local pastors absolutely do. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. First Peter 5, 2 through 4 is, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Let me read that first part again. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples for the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Acts twenty twenty eight. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained in his own blood. James 3.1 Not many of you should become teachers, my brother, for you know that we who will teach will be judged with greater strictness. So if you're a member of this church, I have a responsibility to God as your pastor for you. I don't use the title pastor flippantly. It matters deeply to me. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 gives the qualifications for what a pastor is supposed to be. I preached a sermon on Titus a while back. that Titus also has a section of qualifications for a pastor, and you are more than welcome to re-listen to that. But we'll get to it with deacons. When you walk through the qualifications, what you see is that character matters, personality is secondary. What Paul is saying is pastors' characters matter more than their ability and their personality. 
if they can draw a crowd but you can't trust them, it's a problem. If they understand all of the theological nuances of the Bible but, you won't, but they won't be with you as church members, then that's a problem. If they know the Bible, if they don't know the Bible but they seem spiritual, that's a problem. This office, the office of pastor, is an office of spiritual leadership, but God gives two offices for the church. Deacon is the other one. The word deacon is diakonos in Greek. It's a transliteration. It's the same word, diakonos. It means serve. The problem is the word serve is used all throughout the New Testament. So the struggle is to understand if when diakonos is used, if it's meant to be the office of a deacon or if it's meant just somebody who is serving, which I believe is one of the points of being a deacon. You don't have to have a title to be a servant in the church. You just serve. So we've redone the deacon section in our Constitution and Bylaws, which outlines the process for adding new deacons. So to better understand deacons, which we'll vote on in the near future, let's look at how deacons were founded in the New Testament. This is Acts chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said to them, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering, so they chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Proctorus, and Nicantor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So here's what's happening in Acts. The church is growing like crazy. But a complaint arises that seems like a small complaint until we think about it. This complaint can threaten the unity of this church. Hellenists, which are Greek-speaking, ethnically Jewish people, And so you have this this early church with these different groups of people that are in this early church. And as a part of the early church ministry, a lot of times if somebody converted from Judaism to Christianity, they would no longer receive like the, the help that the Jewish people would give to each other. So as a part of the early church, what they were doing was taking care of those who needed help with food, specifically here, widows. And so the Hellenists, those who speak Greek, probably not Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek, or Aramaic or Hebrew, they speak a different language, come to the apostles and they complain, and they say, our widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. This could have split the church. Like, this is an internal problem. Internal problems within the church are far more dangerous than external problems. External problems tend to push a church together in unity. Internal problems tend to fracture a church and have it shed, like scatter out everywhere. So you have this group of Christians that speak a different language. How easy would it have been to be, say, our people, our widows, our most vulnerable, are getting overlooked by this other church, this group of people. So what we're going to do is we're going to go down the road and we're going to start a new church. First Baptist Church 
of the Hellenist accord. We'll speak our language. We'll have our preferences. We'll make sure our people are taken care of, unlike that other church that neglected us. But that's not what they did. They brought this complaint to the church. And listen, this wasn't a complaint that the AC is too high or too low, the sermon was too long, the pews are too uncomfortable. This was a legitimate complaint that if mishandled would lead to disunity in this fragile new church, it would hinder the gospel from being upheld. And so the 12 apostles call the first business meeting and they summon all the disciples together. Who makes the decision? This is important for us if we're talking about how churches function with Jesus' gifts. Who makes the decision? The apostles bring it before the church, but it's the church that makes the decision. And so the apostles say, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. The apostles' job is to proclaim the gospel, proclaim the word. It's not less important than serving the tables, but they're they're different things that need to be done and taken care of. And so there's a distinction. In Acts 6, the noun deacon is not used, but the verb is. They deacon the tables. So the apostles tell the church, Let's do this. Pick seven men of good repute. That means good reputation. Full of the Spirit of God. Full of wisdom. And they can take over the daily distribution that's supposed to be taking place. You know what this tells us? The Hellenist complaint was right. Their widows were being neglected in the distribution. And the apostles recognize that they can't handle every single little thing, so they handle this administrative task to the deacons so that they can serve the ministry of the word better. If they're worried about making sure everybody gets fed, they're not studying the Bible, they're not proclaiming the Bible like they're supposed to be. And so the church selects seven men. And you know what's interesting that we miss because we don't speak Greek? All seven men have a Greek name, not a Jewish name. Which means... That local church got together and they picked seven men of good refute, full of the Holy Spirit, who were full of wisdom, and were from the group of people that had been neglected. That the Jewish, the ethnically Jewish people who held to that culture said, we will entrust our widows, we will entrust ourselves to this other group of men to take care of ours. That this is what's good for the whole unity of the church, not just for me and my family. And they take those men before the apostles, and the apostles pray and lay hands on them. That's essentially what an ordination service is. And I love verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And you catch who is coming to faith. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. See, the problem spurred on the gospel. People got saved because they took care of this issue well. Do you notice that deacons were not presented as a board that runs the church? Do you notice that they're not presented as a group that gets together to make up rules and to make sure that the young yet handsome pastor doesn't do dumb things? 
They're also not presented as passive men who sit around and talk about nothing and do nothing. They're men elected by the congregation to serve the tables of the congregation for the unity of the church. Did you catch the apostles didn't tell the deacons how to do this? There's not one note here on how they actually went about distributing the food. They just said, it's y'all seven, you, you, right, y'all, that's what they said, y'all's problem. Figure this problem out for the unity of the church. So what kind of men should these servants be? We know just from Acts 6 that they need to have a good reputation, that they should be full of the Spirit, that they should be full of wisdom. But there's another qualification in Acts 6 that we often overlook because it's implied. They are elected from them. Meaning the deacons should be present if most, if not all, of the church's gatherings, especially Sunday morning when the church is most perfectly, most completely gathered together. So what kind of men should be elected as deacons? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 through 13. This comes on the heels of, of the qualifications for a pastor. In the new constitution and bylaws that we've passed, these descriptions are in here. So I'm going to power through these and read these for you quickly. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Dignified means worthy of respect. Not double-tongued. That means honest, that they have integrity that they're, uh, and serenity when speaking, that they're not speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Not addicted to much wine. They're not controlled by intoxicating drinks. They're never causing others to sin by using their freedom in Christ. They're, they're not addicted to anything. Not greedy for dishonest gain. This means not selfish. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What Paul's saying is they don't use the Bible to manipulate people for their selfish ambition. You value the overall health of the church over your own preferences. You use the Bible to help the church be unified and healthy. Also, let them be tested first. Time is the great tester of genuineness. We all can fake things for a little while, but over time we can't. And then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives must be dignified. It's the same qualification as in verse 8, which means the wives are a part of the deacon's ministry. So if they're married, then their spouse must be dignified. They're a part of this. The idea is if it's your spouse, then it's the deacon's job to sanctify his wife. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. This is how Christ loves the church. He sanctifies her in the same way that a husband loves his wife by sanctifying his wife. So if you cannot lead your wife spiritually to the Lord, what business do you have leading a church? Not slanderers. This is not saying something, this is, this is not saying anything behind someone's back that you would not say to their face, but it's also flipped. Not saying things to their face that you wouldn't say behind their back. Sober minded. This is reflecting consistently in stable faith. Faithful in all things. This is trustworthy. The church should trust her deacons. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife. The deacon should be a one-woman man is literally what that means. 
man should be above reproach morally, loyal to one whom, uh, one woman and only one woman, a wife if he is married. In full disclosure, when I was teaching the deacons on these qualifications, this was the one that caused us the most uh, discussions, the most differences. Our church has historically taken a stance that says that this means a deacon cannot be divorced. However, there's a problem with that interpretation. Paul has in mind a much broader sexual ethic than simply someone is divorced or not divorced. He's writing this to Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus, and in Ephesus is a temple to the temple of Artemis, which had temple prostitutes. And men and women would sleep with those temple prostitutes as an act of worship. So what if a deacon remains married worships at the temple of Artemis and his wife knows that he's at this church temple and and the church knows that he's there but if we take Paul's words to strictly mean divorced or not then that man would not be disqualified under this if Paul wanted to say divorce and mean that that's what he would have said so does this mean a deacon needs to be married no Paul was not married, and Paul even writes about the benefit of being single for ministry. No, Paul uses the phrase husband of one wife, which means a one-woman man. There's no woman in a deacon's life besides his wife. So adultery, pornography, lust would all point to that person being a multiple-woman man. So in the case of divorce, and I know we have several in our congregation who are divorced, It's not a straightforward disqualification. But it's certainly something that should be looked into. We know that Jesus gives permission for divorce if there's adultery or abuse. But in both of those, Jesus says you don't have to be divorced. It's just an an option. So each person, if they're divorced and in seeking the qualifications of a deacon, needs to be looked at and understood why the divorce happened, when the divorce happened. A newly divorced person should not serve as a deacon. They should take a significant amount of time of just serving as a local church member because that's a struggle and it's a painful process that they need to heal and to grow through. It's a traumatic season of life. The Bible fights for marriage. Satan does not tempt humanity until there is a marriage. And his temptation in the garden with Adam and Eve fights at the institution of marriage. What Satan does is he tries to flip the roles. The husband is supposed to protect his wife from all the dangers. He's supposed to sanctify her and point her to the Lord. Yet what happens in the garden is Satan bypasses Adam and gets to Eve. So Adam's not protecting Eve from snakes. And there's no good husband in West Texas that won't protect his wife from a snake. Amen? And Eve has the conversation with Satan, not Adam. It's, it's, it's subtle, but it's this break of marriage. It's the first attack. With that being said... It's just as dangerous to add to the Bible as it is to take things away from the Bible. So this is not a straightforward one-to-one reference to divorce. If someone was divorced before they were a believer, or they worked through it and prayed through their spouse's infidelity and ultimately was thrust into divorce, but they've been married to their current spouse, or they've been single for 30-plus years, I think we would define that person as a one-woman man. 
Uh, this is a complicated subject matter. Uh, and, and, and in divorce, there's always sin present, and sin always muddies the water. So what Paul's doing here is he's opening it up much wider than just is he divorced or not divorced. It's what kind of a man is he? Is there devotedness there? Managing their children and their own households well. If you cannot spiritually lead your own household, you cannot spiritually lead the church either. You cannot save your children. However, you can live a life that exemplifies the gospel being primary in your life. So your kids and your wife in the privacy of your own home and in the recesses of their hearts should not be surprised that you're a deacon. I've said this before, and it's important to remember because your kids and your responsibility to them and their responsibility to you does not end when they leave the house. Honor your father and mother doesn't just extend until they're physically out of your house. That goes till death. Train up a child in the way they should go. doesn't end when they become adults. It changes. It shifts. They look different. The older a child gets, the more the role of influence you have on them plays a part as opposed to just authority. And and kids, if your parents are still alive, it doesn't matter how old you are. You could be 110, and if your parents are still alive, your job is to honor them. All of that's outlined in our Constitution and bylaws. I'd encourage you to look at it if you're confused. But the reality of the qualifications for a deacon is that it's impossible to perfectly keep those. Impossible. So in one sense, when we read those things, it should be overwhelming. We should read that and think, I cannot do that. Or I do not do that. And listen, if you one who's elected and ordained, there's no magic formula that takes place after the ordination where all of a sudden you're holy. If anything... The attacks ramp up. This is healthy for us to know that it's unachievable fully and completely. So then how can we look at these qualifications and how can we hold them up? Well, we can look at a person's life over a long period of time and see if this is generally true of their life. We're going to look and see if a person is repentant in the areas that they they're fall short of. If they're working hard to grow in areas that they struggle with. And if that, that effort and that growth is not in their own power, but it's in the power of the gospel. So what is a deacon? A deacon is someone who understands that the gospel of Jesus is in Jesus in my place, and their lives are lived out emulating Jesus as much as they can. You remember Jesus is called a servant he came not to serve, but to uh, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word servant is diakonos. He came not to be deaconed, but to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the idea of who a deacon is and what they do. But listen, a deacon is not a pastor. They're two different offices that the Lord has given. Both are servants, but they serve the church differently. The key difference between deacons and pastors is in Timothy's qualifications of the pastor, there's one thing required of of a pastor that's not required of a deacon. 
pastors must be able to teach. It doesn't mean that they only teach from the pulpit proclaiming the word, although that should be a skill that has grown and developed, but one-on-one in a Sunday school class on Wednesdays, pastors should be teaching. And this is not to say the deacons cannot teach. In Acts 6, Stephen was one of the first deacons named. And right after Acts 6, Stephen preaches a sermon that ends up getting him killed. He's the first martyr in all of the Bible. But the responsibility of the deacon is on the practical things in and around the church to maintain the unity. So pastors deacon the word, the ministry of the word, while deacons deacon the practical ministry to help the pastors do the ministry of the word. Pastors serve by leading, deacons lead by serving. So it goes like this. Pastors lead the ministry, deacons facilitate the ministry, and church members do the ministry. And I know this is an odd sermon compared to what we normally do, but this is crucial for our church. the reality of of the qualifications that are listed for a deacon is that's not just for a select group of people. There is nothing in those that you as a Christian should not strive to be. Imagine with me a church that's filled with people, whether they're in the office of deacon or not, that are growing in those qualifications. Where our love for one another is unique and it's attractive to other people where our church's unity is not based upon fickle and fleeting things like hobbies, where our church's unity is based upon Christ and Him crucified, where we have pastors who teach the Word, deacon the Word of God in the public setting like this one, but also in more intimate settings that we trust and that we value. We have deacons who are seeing issues that are present and issues that might arise that could potentially cause disunity in the body, so they fit them, uh, so they take care of them, not for personal gains or personal accolades, but for the sake of our local church, for Ira Baptist Church and her members. That's a healthy church. That's the direction we're walking in, centered on the gospel of Jesus. We will not get there in our own power. We'll walk in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserved. Who, not by any goodness or any value in us, but because of his love for us, which is far greater and far better than we could ever imagine. He first loved us when we were unlovable. He took our place when we were unlovable. He bore the wrath for our sin that we deserved when we were unlovable. He credits to us his righteousness that we could never earn when we were unlovable. But because of the gospel, if we genuinely believe it, we love our brothers and our sisters at Ira Baptist Church even when we're most unlovable. Not because we're better than others or because others are are better and easier to love. We love because Jesus and the finished work of the cross. Because salvation means we are changed from the inside first, but slowly and surely over the course of time as the gospel continues to clean us out, our outside begins to look more and more like Jesus too. So if you're one of the persons who's been asked to be in prayer about your willingness to serve as a deacon, let me emphasize 1 Timothy 3.13. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves 
and also great confidence in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not need perfect deacons. We need deacons who week in and week out show up and lead the church by serving. Taking care of the background things that the rest of the church members don't even notice most of the time. We need deacons who love this church, who long to see her to be more healthy and to maintain her health. We need deacons who contend for the unity of the body. They they place the needs of the church before their own. So here's how I want to close this sermon, a little bit different since it's different. If you're one of those that are in that boat, that are asked to pray about this, to being a, a new deacon, I hope this feels overwhelming, but I also hope that you see a glimmer of gospel hope in this. That it's well worth your time and well worth your effort. So what I want to do is just guide us through praying for a few things, and then we'll have Tanner lead us in a final song. So church, church, you, you may not know who they are. Take a few seconds and just pray for those men who are seeking uh, the Lord as they pray about their willingness to serve as a deacon. Take a few seconds and just pray for those families. We should take a few seconds and pray for our current deacons in their families. I don't want this to come off as like our, I don't like our deacons now. I love our deacons now. We have a phenomenal group of men who are leading those things. But this is a position ordained by the Lord, which means it's going to be attacked by Satan. So I pray that you would er, take a few seconds and pray for the current deacons and their families. Take a few seconds and pray for me and my family. I'm not a deacon. I have a different role, a different office, but nonetheless, I'm in need of prayer. And if I'm honest with you, there's a a hint of pride within my own heart where I struggle to ask for prayer because it feels like I shouldn't need it. But that's not the case. Pray for me as I try to spiritually lead our church and I'm deeply flawed in many areas. Spend a few seconds praying for our church members. That it should mean something to be a member of this church, of this body. Spend a few seconds praying for those who attend but are not members. We would love for you to join, whether that means repenting and believing in Jesus for the first time, whether that means moving your membership from a different church to this one, whether that means baptism because you're a believer but you've never been baptized. Whatever that looks like, pray for them for just a few seconds. And lastly, take a few seconds. Just Here's what I think the Lord is doing. Imagine, like, we know how dry 
it is in our area, how we haven't had rain in a long time and the devastation that that is causing and how there's no hope of rain to come. Now imagine what our spiritual condition is. I believe one of the things the Lord is doing for us right now is showing us physically, spiritually what's going on. That we're often in a dry, in a desolate place. So spend a few seconds just praying the God of living water would lavish that upon us, whether that's rain, that he help us to repent of our sins and turn to Jesus, that he would be with us as a community. Spend a few seconds praying for spiritual health. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today.